The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist and a columnist of the Hill in Washington, DC. You want to read my columns in the Hill, uh, you can take a look at them at muckrack.com, front slash Brad Bannon, front slash articles. That's muckrack, all one word. Uh, my company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, we've got a big show for you today. In the first half hour, our guest is John Nichols, uh, f- uh, national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Uh, He's going to talk about uh, the opportunities for progressives in the April 4th elections in the Chicago mayor's race and the Wisconsin Supreme Court justice race. Then in the second half hour, Hope Fry, co-founder of Project Lifeline, uh, talks about the plight of immigrant kids at the Mexican border. I also want to uh, welcome our executive producer, Mark Romaldi, uh, who joins us uh, to make sure the, stay, the show stays on, online uh, and it, it on, the tra- on the tracks, too, uh, which is an important thing in this day and age. Uh, anyway, before we get to our first guest, uh, we have this uh, audio clip to play from Ben Winkler, who's the Democratic chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. This election's for all the marbles. If you think about 2020, Wisconsin was the state that came closest to overturning the presidential election. It was one vote on the state Supreme Court out of the seven that prevented Wisconsin from actually throwing out the ballots and giving Trump the election result. Dan Kelly, the the Republican-backed candidate in this officially nonpartisan race, was an advisor to the fake elector scheme, and he's running for Supreme Court. So this could affect the 2024 presidential election. It can affect whether abortion is safe and legal in Wisconsin or subject to a ban that was originally passed in the year 1849. It'll determine whether our legislative maps remain totally gerrymandered so that Republicans can lose by 11 points statewide and still control majorities in the state legislature. All of that's at stake. And Everyone either is working on it now or should be. Is Wisconsin paying attention to this election? It's an off. It's an off year and an off season. Is this is this on top on the top people's minds? You expect to be large turnout. So compared to a November election for governor, Senate or presidential elections, turnout is much, much lower. Yeah. But compared to previous spring elections, we had a primary in February. The turnout jumped 34% over the previous record for any February primary in the history of Wisconsin. So this is a race where people are are jumping in on both sides. And the other thing that's wild about these Supreme Court races, these come down sometimes to a fraction of one percentage point. In 2011 and in 2019, the progressive candidate lost by less than half of 1%. So pretty much 
anyone who can cast a ballot could decide the fate of the majority of our state Supreme Court and the future of freedom in Wisconsin. Okay, that was uh, the uh, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. Uh, Our guest today is uh, John Nichols, uh, who is national affairs correspondent for The Nation and the associate editor of the Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, John, welcome back to Deadline DC. It's good to have you. It's great to be with you, Brad. Uh, We've got two uh, election days on April 4th, uh, and you've written columns about both of them. Uh, the first one is a Supreme Court justice uh, in uh, for state of Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, the other one is the Chicago mayor's race. And it seems to me both of them, uh, they're both in the Midwest. They're both on April 4th. Uh, they both have implications uh, about issues and uh, progressive opportunities. Uh, since you're joining us from Madison, Wisconsin, uh, let's start with the uh, Supreme Court judge uh, race in Wisconsin. Uh, tell us, set the stage for us. Uh, who are the candidates? Well, there's two uh, candidates in the runoff. We had a four-candidate primary in February. The two who came out were Janet Protosewitz, who is a uh, judge from Milwaukee County. She is generally supported by progressives. And the other is Dan Kelly, who is a former Supreme Court justice uh, who was very closely aligned with Scott Walker, the former Republican governor who appointed him to the court. And Kelly got beat when he sought a full term on the court in 2020. So they each have you know, a reasonable level of experience, but they are very, very different candidates. Uh, Kelly is extremely hard on the right. He is a very big right winger. Um, he was on the court, an absolute sort of locked in vote for the agenda of the Republicans who control the state legislature. But more than that, um, he has for many, many years worked for right wing groupings. And um, after he got beat for the court, he even went to work as a lawyer and counselor for the Republican Party uh, during the 2020 fight over certification of Wisconsin election, election results. So he's on that side. Protosewitz is very different. She uh, is a longtime assistant district attorney. She was in the prosecutor's office in Milwaukee County for many, many years um, and then was elected to a judgeship. Uh, She's served for quite a bit of time as a county judge and is sort of a classic mainstream jurist. Um, And she's also, one final thing is, she's very honest with people. Uh, She will never talk about how she would decide a case and say, oh, I'm, I'm on this side or that side of a case. But if you ask her you know, what she thinks about gerrymandering, she'll, she'll tell you she thinks it's anti-democratic. If you ask her what she thinks about the right to choose, she will say she thinks that women have a constitutional right to choose. Um, and so uh, interestingly, her bluntness, I think, has really uh, helped her tremendously in this race. In the primary, she got 46% of the vote. Kelly, the uh, conservative candidate, got around 23, 24%. And, there was another liberal in the primary who got 8%. So if you add the two progressive candidates together, you end up with 54% right there coming out of the primary, which is pretty good for them. Um, And as the general election race has played out, I would say that most of the evidence uh, is that Protosewitz appears to have a lead. Okay. Now, uh, Wisconsin is uh, well-known nationally as a uh, swing state. Oh, yeah. Uh, Joe Biden uh, won a narrow victory there in uh, 2020. 
Um, but uh, last year in the 2022 midterms, the incumbent uh, Republican senator, uh, Ron Johnson, who is very conservative, sort of borderlines on crazy, um, uh, won. Uh, is this uh, is the outcome of the Supreme uh, Court race? Is that going to uh, uh, is, is that going to uh, say anything about Wisconsin in 2024? Oh, sure. No, you know, you're always looking at the tea leaves in Wisconsin. Uh, it is, as you say, Brad, a very closely divided state. Of the last six presidential elections in Wisconsin, four of them were decided by under 25,000 votes. I mean, you just can't find a state that's more closely divided. And in, you're right, in 2022, Ron Johnson got reelected, but Tony Evers, a very progressive Democratic governor, also got reelected by a, by a much wider margin. And so, yeah, you're always looking at, at you know, all these signals of where things are at. You have to recognize, of course, partisanship is a factor, ideology is a factor, and personalities can be a factor as well. But when all is said and done, the Supreme Court race is probably one of the best barometers of you know, where things are headed. And I'll tell you why. Um, in 2018, five years ago, we had a Supreme Court race uh, in which you had a very conservative candidate and a very progressive candidate. The progressive won pretty easily, uh, Rebecca Dallet. In 2020, and by the way, and then 2018 turned out to be a very good year for Democrats in Wisconsin. In 2020, um, you had a race between Dan Kelly, this conservative justice, and a much more progressive judge named Jill Karofsky. Um, Jill Karofsky won by a big margin, and that then turned out to be a pretty good year for Democrats in the fall in Wisconsin. And so I do think that if you see a strong showing in the Supreme Court race, you know, with Janet Porcetz winning, uh, that's a pretty good signal for progressive forces and Democrats that they've got their it isn't, you know, that you're just looking at the results. You're also looking at the question of, do they have their act together as regards organizing, mobilizing, getting the resources they need? And um, certainly if they win this race, a couple things will happen. One, uh, you will have that, that evidence that they seem to be doing pretty well. Two, that will shift control of the court. The court is currently 4-3 conservative. If Janet Protosiewicz wins. Okay, John, we're going to uh, go back to that. We have to take a quick break. Okay. Uh, for our radio listeners, our viewers on Twitter and Facebook are staying with us, as is John, I hope. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, right after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, a note to our uh, folks who are listening to us on radio. Uh, if you want to see us as well as hear us uh, in Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, uh, you can watch us at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon, or you can watch us on Facebook at Deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Our guest in this half hour is John Nichols, national affairs correspondent uh, for The Nation and also associate editor of the uh, Capital Times in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, in the previous two segments, we've discussed uh, the uh, state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. Uh, in the segment, uh, last segment, we talked about Chicago mayor's race. Uh, let me ask you this question, John. Uh, there are 
signature issues uh, in both races, mm -hmm. uh, which could figure heavily in the 2024 campaign, uh, abortion in uh, Wisconsin uh, and crime in Chicago. So my first question is, uh, will you talk about uh, in Wisconsin, the two candidates for state Supreme Court justice uh, seem to be diametrically opposed on the abortion issue. I assume Wisconsin is a uh, strong pro-choice state. Am I right about that, John? Yeah, you're basically right, Brad. Um, there's been a lot of polling by Marquette University's law school, which has a, a very good polling operation. And they've generally found that in Wisconsin, you know, you're talking about roughly two thirds of people are broadly supportive of abortion rights. Um, and in fact, when you're talking about a, a real ban on reproductive access to reproductive rights, um, then you get even higher than that, even, you know, 70s and 80s, people being opposed to a ban. So uh, yeah, Wisconsin is, has historically been a pretty pro-choice state. And um, you are also right that the two candidates are diametrically opposed there. Janet Prosewitz has made clear that she is uh, sympathetic to a woman's right to choose. Uh, and Dan Kelly is supported very passionately by anti-choice groups in Wisconsin. But he's trying to avoid discussion of, the, of yeah. abortion, isn't he? Uh, I think you would, too, if you were yeah. in a state where the, where, if the numbers are looking the way that they are. And I will tell you, uh, um, the abortion issue played in a big way in the governor's race last year. And Tony Evers, who had won by only about 25,000 votes in 2018, uh, won by, you know, in the range of 100,000 votes this time. And I do think it was a real factor. And okay. so I, you, you'll see Protosewitz in her ads and everything emphasizing the abortion issue quite a bit. Okay. Uh, let's switch to Chicago. Uh, the uh, incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, uh, did not make uh, survive the uh, preliminary election. Uh, why didn't she? Hey, look, you know, this is a challenge for mayors across the country. Uh, this has been a rough last four years. COVID-19, um, the, the reaction to the George Floyd murder, um, a host of other issues that really kind of came to a head in cities across this country. And, um, and mayors have had to manage a, a lot of, of challenging issues. Uh, I, Lightfoot, I think, was never an overwhelmingly popular mayor. Uh, and so as she ran for re-election, uh, her base of, of really ardent supporters was relatively small. She tried to build it out with a very you know, expensive campaign and, and with a lot of messaging, um, but it, it just didn't, it didn't get there. And, and so she became the, the first uh, incumbent mayor in Chicago to be beaten uh, in the better part of 40 years. Um, and I think that, that one final factor in it was that with you had Brandon Johnson, who was started the race as almost an unknown, a relative unknown. He's a county board member, but but wasn't wasn't a, a big figure in Chicago. Um, but he built a progressive coalition that got him a very strong vote from progressive voters. He also got a solid vote from black voters. Not not you know life did a little better, but he did very well there. And so what Johnson did was sort of spread his appeal out across the city. And it allowed him to come in ahead of Lightfoot. Okay. Uh, now, crime uh, is uh, a big issue in Chicago, as it is in many big cities uh, nationally. Is there a difference between the two candidates uh, on uh, how they'd address uh, crime in Chicago? 
Yeah, it's a profound difference. In fact, it may be their most profound difference. Um, Paul Vallis has run his whole campaign big on crime issues, uh, public safety issues. That's that's been a central theme of his campaign from the start. Um, where and he's a very he's a tough stance with the support of the police union and, and such folks. On the other hand, Brandon Johnson has argued that the crime issues in Chicago have been a long-term problem, and that the proper response to them is going to be a multifold response that does involve some reorganization of policing, um, but it also involves you know more money into education, more money into housing, more money into the neighborhoods to try and, and lift people up so that that you create a more stable overall situation. So what I think you, what you got here is with Vallis with the classic tough on crime stance uh, that's been tried before, uh, sounding in some ways a little bit like a Republican, and um, Johnson with the, that sort of much broader holistic response. And we'll see we'll see where it plays out. Um, you know, in the primary, uh, Vallis ran as the toughest on crime candidate, and he did get about a third of the vote. But it is notable that um, the rest of the votes went to candidates who had more nuanced stances on the issue. So John, really, Johnson's challenge is to get the support from those some of those other candidates, Lightfoot supporters, as well as supporters of Chewy Garcia, another liberal uh, who lost in the primary, but but got a pretty solid vote, especially from the Hispanic community. OK, is now the obvious one of the obvious things is that Dallas uh is white uh and uh, uh johnson is uh african-american i m- imagine l- most of the voters african-american is that going to you know be a big big factor for johnson sure race is always a factor in chicago elections uh, race ethnicity you know the demographics as well as the neighborhoods and uh both candidates are really trying to reach out across lines of of what might be division but um, yeah, I do think I think that it's likely that Johnson gets a very substantial black vote, and that Vallis tends to be more substantial white. Okay, um, John, I'm have to interrupt you rudely. Interrupt you. We're out of time. I want to thank John Nichols, uh, who is uh, national affairs correspondent for the uh, Nation. Uh, I want to thank him for joining us again on Deadline DC, and we hope to have him back soon. Thank you, John. Thanks, Brad. Good to be with you. Okay. Welcome back at with Brad Bannon. Uh, in this half hour, we're going to discuss uh, immigration. Uh, and before we get to our guest, I want to play this uh, clip uh, from the former failed president uh, talking about uh, the immigration issue. We will use all necessary state, local, federal, and military resources to carry out the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. Other countries are emptying out their prisons, insane asylums, and mental institutions, and sending all of their problems right into their dumping ground, the USA. Think of it. They're emptying out their prisons, and you've heard me say that, but they're also emptying out their mental institutions. And uh, to use a strong couple of words, insane asylum. Insane asylum, that's where... Anybody see Silence of the Lamb? That's where they come from, insane asylum. That's a stronger word than a mental institution. And they're putting them into our country. Thank you very much. I will ask every state 
and federal agency to identify every known or suspected gang member in America and every one of them that is here illegally. And the towns know who they are. The towns and cities are the police. We love our police. Okay, that was our former failed president who's attempting to make a comeback. Uh, and if he does, uh, big problems. Uh, there may not be a deadline, D.C., if uh, Donald Trump wins the presidential election. I may go into hiding. Uh, we're going to talk about immigration in this half hour. Uh, but bef- uh, our guest is uh, Hope Fry, who's the co-founder of Project Lifeline. Project Lifeline l- list exists to fight for justice and freedom for undocumented immigrant children. I, I want to say something here. Th- this is an issue that that bothers me a lot. You know, we've had hope on the show several times because and mainly it's because I read or hear something about the situation in the on the Mexican border that really disturbs me. And that's true in this case. Uh, and uh, hope the first thing I want to ask you about is uh, that uh, President Biden uh, is under pressure. Uh, Republicans are clobbering him. Uh, such as the former Phil president did uh, on the immigration issue. Uh, and I was disturbed to learn that uh, they may, uh, the Biden administration may revert back to some of the uh, uh, immigration policies of the former failed president in his administration. Uh, could you address that, Hope? Um, I'm afraid that it's true. Um, I want to talk about specifically about family detention, because this is something uh, Biden campaigned and said he would end family detention. And he did. And now, because he doesn't know what to do on May 11th, when he ends the specious Title 42 expulsions, he's thinking about and probably going to reopen family detention. Now, let me just clear up a misunderstanding. Family detention is not the detention of families. It is the detention of children with a parent, with a mother or a father. And the larger detention centers have been with mothers. Um, So it's a misnomer. We're not keeping families together. We are separating families. It's interesting. The history of family detention doesn't start with Trump. It starts in 2001 with children being detained in Pennsylvania in Berks. And then it goes to 2014 and 2015, um, where uh, Obama reopens detention centers that had opened under uh, H. Bush and were closed by Obama. Um, When I uh, went, I went to these detention centers and they're not, you know, they're called family residential centers, but they're basically jails in open air. Um, I went to the South Texas Residential Detention Center or Residential Facility, which we call Dilly. It's in Dilly, Texas. When I was there, there were 2,400, 2,400 mothers and children. Um, They were detained in what I consider squalid conditions with inadequate food, um, grossly inadequate medical care, um, 
children with nothing to do, people in congregant care settings for sleeping with no privacy, no hygiene. Um, and I think, you know, Brad, the the suffering of the people there, the medical suffering has been documented. And I think it's been documented best by the congressional testimony of Yasmin Juarez, whose 19-month-old baby, can you see that? Okay, uh, Hope's showing a picture of one of the children in uh, the so-called family detention centers. This is Marie, was Marie Juarez. She was a 19-month-old baby whose mother, Yasmin, came fleeing uh, persecution in Guatemala seeking asylum. And they were thrown into the Dili Detention Center. And Marie got sick very quickly. There were other children being held in the same pod, which is a misnomer. They're just a wretched, they're squalid as Marie. And, and the child was sick. And Marie got sick and sicker and sicker, and her mother took her for medical care. There's a medical unit there. She wouldn't see a doctor. They wouldn't let her see a doctor. The baby's getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. The story is unconscionable. Finally, she's scheduled to see a doctor, but the baby never sees a doctor because the day she's supposed to, Yasmin is processed for departure. The baby is given a clear medical clearance. Shortly after that, she died in freedom in a hospital, a horrendous death that would have been completely preventable had the medical providers at Dili been the least bit competent. Um, Yasmin testified before Congress, before Jamie Raskin's Committee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberty. Um, there wasn't a dry eye in the House except for Jim Jordan, who couldn't find anything to say but some obscure religious reference. Everybody else, Jamie Raskin, all of the other people were, were actually crying. The story is so horrendous. 2,400 people, Carnes Family Detention Center, when I was there, it had 850 mothers and children. These are the centers that Biden is considering reopening. I don't know how he can do it. I don't know how he can justify it. The suffering of people there is deep. The condition is inhumane. Uh, yeah, that's very disturbing. You know, I just, you know, let me ask you, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, you've been on the show several times over the last few years. Uh, and. You know, I, I think what's going on on the Mexican border is a travesty to American values. Um, you know, it reminds me, uh, you know, back during World War II, we threw a lot of uh, Japanese Americans uh, in internment camps during the war. And now everybody, well, most everybody, I'm sure Jim Jordan thought it was a good idea if he had been around. Um, but most people now think it's a blemish, you know, uh, on American history. And, you know, it, you know, that's what I think is going to happen is years from now, people will look at it and say, did we really do that uh, to immigrants? Uh, did we do that? to immigrant children, treat them so badly. And I hope everybody's ashamed 
Um, but instead of being shamed uh, 20 years from now, we should do something about it now. And I guess uh, my question to you, Hope, is, is there any way of reconciling our need for border protection and also to act as, you know, caring human beings? Well, you know, I think it requires first that we be caring human beings. I think if you look around the border states, I mean, look at Texas and Governor Abbott. Uh, I think that the great state of Texas is a state where we have forgotten about the value of caring for our brother and our sister. We've forgotten that children are all beautiful. And somehow or other, we fall into a trap of thinking that those people, those people are going to do something to us. So first, we have to come together in the idea that we need to do something and it needs to be humane. I think, I think that's the problem. There are people who still think family separation, stripping babies from their mothers and their fathers is an okay thing to do and we should do it again because there's some bizarre notion that it would have a, a deterrent effect. We need to do what McCain did some years ago when he assembled... Okay, Hulk, can we uh, pick this up? We have to take a short break now for our radio listeners, but we'll be right back with Hope Fry, co-founder of Project Lifeline. Welcome back to Deadline PC. My guest in the segment is Hope Fry, uh, who is the co-founder of Project Lifeline. Project Lifeline exists to fight for justice and freedom for undocumented immigrate, immigrant children who were treating, who were treated very badly and an embarrassment, uh, she'd be embarrassment to the American public. Hope, uh, you know, I, I read something an economist wrote. With, well, there's a couple things I read last year uh, I read last week that uh, Iowa just uh, passed a law which was signed um, by uh, the new governor who was the press secretary for the former failed president uh, that uh, basically uh, made it easier for companies to hire uh, kids who are less than 16 years old. And I imagine a lot of those are probably migrant children, do you think? Oh, yeah. In Iowa, absolutely. There's a large population, large migrant population uh, in Iowa. Absolutely. Um, another thing uh, that I read, uh, I read too much. Uh, another thing I read was about Social Security. And you mentioned this in the previous uh, before we went to break, uh, that uh, white America is retiring uh, and uh, that's going to make it very difficult uh, because we don't have enough young workers uh, to pay the freight on Social Security. And I read an economist who said that's one of the reasons why we need immigration uh, is because uh, they are the workforce of tomorrow. Uh, changes in the economy happen when the workforce, workforce is young, and we also need young workers to pay the freight on Social Security. 
so there's a, another argument uh, for having a sensible immigration policy as opposed to one. I'm not even sure we have immigration policy anymore. We don't. We just have a fear-based nothingness. I mean, and Biden, you know, he made a lot of promises about immigration and he didn't keep a lot of them. He didn't end Title 42. He didn't do a lot of things. And he ended family uh, detention. And now he's going to bring it back. They've put in no plan. They have, they've had four years, essentially, three years to do something and they've done nothing. It's it's so disappointing, and you know, you you have to wonder um, why. You know, early on it wasn't politics. Now it's politics. Now it's the presidential election. It's DeSantis and his racist anti-immigrant policies, and uh, you know all of the craziness in Florida and Texas. Now it's trying to balance that. But it wasn't like that early in his presidency for the first two years, and I I can't understand it. I don't don't. Well, you know, you mentioned something about fear based policies. And uh, one of the most striking things that I keep thinking of when we have debates on immigration uh, and on racial policy in general is a couple of years ago, the U.S. Census Bureau uh, released a report. It was an estimate. And according to the Census Bureau, by 2045, which is only 22 years away, uh, this country uh, will be uh, majority minority, uh, mainly because of the, the growth uh, the growth rate in, in the uh, Latino population, uh, and uh, it will be minority white. Uh, and honestly, I think when you talk about fear-based policies, a lot of this comes from the fact that I think, you know, many Americans, especially older white Americans, um, are, see the changes in American society. Uh, they see the television ads for biracial, uh, couples. Uh, and I think, uh, I think the population changes in this country are, you know, scaring people to death. And that's why, and I'm fortunately, we're probably going to have more immigration, fear of immigration and racial diversity, uh, because the closer we get to 2045, the more it's going to become obvious people uh, that, you know, white people aren't going to run this country forever. Yeah, you know, uh, you Brad, can- this, is, this is not new news, right? 32 years ago. I spoke before the American Judicature Society, which is the professional association to which federal judges belong, about we were looking demographically at this change that the that we were going to be whites were going to be in the minority. And at that time, there were hardly any women on the bench. There were no minorities at all. And I was talking about the difference in ways people testify based on the cultures they come from and how assumptions that you have when you've got white or even black defendants uh, who are uh, American born or or. Um, uh, largely raised here, your assumptions must be put aside and you have to listen differently. That's more than 30 years ago we were having that conversation. I mean, it's not new news. No, it isn't. And unfortunately, I think it's going to increase the fear mongering. Uh, 
because I, I think a lot of, you know, especially older white Americans aren't prepared uh, for the demographic forces that are shaping this nation. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, what is Project Lifeline doing to help migrant children? Ah, we have a very special initiative. 90% of immigrant children who are coming have been abused, neglected, abandoned, or something similar to that. And there is a provision in the law called Special Immigrant Juvenile Status that offers protection to these children where reunification with one or both parents is impossible. And this is done at the state court level. Children who can benefit from this, who have a lawyer to help them through this, become permanent residents on a path to citizenship. It's something that offers real protection that is largely done, the, 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 the seminal piece of it is done in the state where the child lives by child welfare state court judges. So there's state oversight on this, not just federal. If you can't pass the first piece in the state, you can't get the benefit. So many children are eligible for this. Almost, you know, we estimate that 90% of the children in rural America, those are the children who are working in the chicken factories. Those are the kids that are picking, uh, picking crops. Um, uh, these children are eligible for this benefit. This would get them out of those situations and put them on a path to be included in American society. So we're working to empower advocates to do these kinds of cases. Uh, okay, let me ask you this, and this is probably the final question. You know, right now, there, there's no consensus in Congress for doing anything about this problem, mainly because the Republicans like to have it because it gives them fodder on the campaign trail. And I remember, I think, uh, the second President Bush uh, and President Obama uh, had proposals uh, that would, which were labeled as compromises. Uh, they would spend a lot more money on border security. I think it was like a couple of trillion dollars. Uh, uh, it would create a path to citizenship for undocumented uh, immigrants after living here for 15 years. Uh, and it would also crack down employers uh, who use migrant labor, which I guess they didn't hear about in Iowa. Um, is that something, is, is that a solution to the problem? Um, Brad, it's hard to say if that's a solution. It would depend how it was put together. There are so many moving parts that, I mean, those are ideas that have to be part of what we do, but there are so many moving parts that, I mean, we have to come together and really talk about how we're going to have a solution. It's complicated, but nobody's got the will to do it, and everybody's too afraid to try. You know, I think that's part of the problem is immigration to me is one of those problems like climate change where it's obvious to anybody except for maybe Jim Jordan and the people who hang out with Jim Jordan that we need to do something to deal with the situation. But the reality is it just shows that government has lost its capacity to deal with problems that fundamentally uh, affect the nation. 
uh, and, you know, again, climate change is one, immigration and another, and, you know, I think money in politics is another one, uh, but the system doesn't work to solve these problems anymore. Do you see any hope on the horizon? Not pun. I always see hope because I choose to be forward dreaming. I think, I always think there is possibility. I mean, we have to think that. Do I see it happening anytime soon? No. But I think we do have to stay positive. And those of us who are progressive and can compromise, because this is going to have to be compromised. We know how to compromise. We know how to come together. We're going to have to leave it there, Hope, because we're out of time again. I want to thank uh, Hope Fry, uh, co-founder of Project Lifeline. I also want to thank John Nichols uh, from The Nation. And, of course, Mark Ramoldi, our intrepid uh, executive producer who uh, stops me from making a fool of myself. We'll be back with more Deadline DC next week. <laughs>